was thinking this week, something reminded me, I don't even know what it was, but uh, it, it reminded me of, of, there was one time in uh, one Sunday morning when I got up to preach and I realized that I had grabbed the wrong notes. I had taken the notes from the previous Sunday's sermon and placed them on my desk and I had forgotten to you know, throw them away, uh, the hard copy away. And, uh, and so I would grabbed those off my desk thinking those were the notes for th- that particular Sunday when they were the notes from the Sunday before. And so luckily somebody was able to go back and grab the other notes. I had them on my desk and so they were able to go back and grab them and I was able to stall for just a few moments and, and make it through. But, uh, but I'm thankful that they were able to go back and, and get those and uh, went on with the lesson. I had a couple of people ask me after the service, they said, well, don't, you know, you, you don't memorize your, your sermon. And I said, are you kidding me? I can't even remember to bring my notes in, much less memorize the sermon, but it it reminded me of a story I heard about one preacher. He got to church one Sunday morning and he looked down at his notes and realized just like I had that he had grabbed the wrong notes. The problem was this was before computers and and smartphones, even the internet, so he couldn't just go print off another copy. The copy that he needed or the notes that he needed for that sermon were at his house. And he was supposed to preach in 20 minutes and he lived 15 minutes away. So you can see the, the issue and the problem. So he went to one of the elders and he said, just stall as long as you can. I'm gonna run back home, drive back home as fast as I can, get the notes and, and I'll be back as soon as I can. And so he ran to his car and then rushed home, trying to get home as fast as he can. And he broke every, pretty much every law that you can break in a car. He ran stop signs, he ran red lights, he drove way over the speed limit and he got to his house in 10 minutes. And that's when he saw the flashing red lights behind him. He got pulled over by a police officer. And so the officer walked up to the preacher's car. And of course, the preacher's got his suit and tie on and all that stuff. And uh, so the officer right away, you know, recognizes probably what what he's doing. But uh, he, before the officer can even get a word out, the, the preacher says, As officer, I, I'm so sorry. I know I was driving too fast, but here's the deal. You know that big white church on the other side of town? Well, in 10 minutes, they're expecting to hear a sermon that's in that house right there. And one of us has got to preach it. <laughs> well, thankfully, the officer smiled and said, Pastor, I'm going to let you go this time, but you need to slow down, right? But what's the moral of, of, of the story? Well, the moral is I don't care how, you know, how, how long you've been a Christian. I don't care what your title is. You will never reach a place where you will not be able to use a little more grace. It's like the story of the man who died and went to heaven. And of course, Peter meets him at the pearly gates because we we all know that's how it works. And Peter says to him, okay, here's the deal. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done and I give you a certain number of points for each item depending on how good it is. And when you reach 100 points, you get in. Okay, says the man. Well, I was married to the same woman. He starts off, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and I never cheated on her even in my heart. Well, that's, that's, that's great, says Peter. That's worth three points. Three points, the man says. Well, okay, I, I attended church all my life, and I was involved in helping out in, 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 in several different ministries, and I even tithed every week. And Peter said, that's terrific. That's certainly worth two points. Two points? Oh, man. Okay, said the man. How about this? I, I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. And Peter said, that's fantastic. 
That's good for another point. Man says, one point? At this rate, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter says, exactly, son. Come on in. You see, grace is necessary to start the Christian race. When you give your life to Jesus Christ and you are buried with him in baptism, you are announcing the truth that you don't have the ability. You don't have the means to save yourself. Only God can save you. And you need to unite with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is an announcement that you need grace from the very beginning. But you don't just need grace to start the Christian race. You need grace from start to finish of the Christian race. From start to finish, this race is fueled by grace. In fact, the further you go with Christ, the deeper you are going to have to go with grace. And the good news is, grace goes deep. And so we're going to start a series today that's going to head into Easter, just a little three-week series, a short little three-week series that we're calling uh, just that, Grace Goes Deep. And in this series, I just want us to explore how as followers of Jesus Christ, we go ever deeper into our understanding and our experience of the grace of God, because there is this This distorted gospel out there that goes something like this. Grace is for sinners. Grit is for Christians. That you need grace to get saved, certainly. But then you better buckle up and hunker down and power through. And I think this idea idea is well illustrated by a story I I heard about about one little boy. He was really young and his parents decided that Um, you know, they they really didn't want him playing with guns, like toy guns. And so they didn't buy him any guns uh, for for quite some time. But then they learned what most parents find out, right? Uh, That that little boy turned everything he played with into a gun. A stick became a gun. A bat became a gun. Another little toy became a gun. Everything became a gun. And so finally they broke down and they bought him a couple of toy guns. And of course the boy just loved them. And so one night the mom was reading him a little bedtime story before he went to bed and they were reading about Daniel in the lion's den. And after the story, she said to him, now, what would you do if you were in a den of lions? And the little boy said, well, I would get my guns and I would shoot those lions. Now that wasn't exactly the answer that she wanted. And so she tried again. She said, but what if you don't have your guns? Would you pray, God, God, save me from the lions? And the little boy said, no, mama, I would pray, God, send me my guns. <laughs> but how many, us, how, how many of us believe, God, you get me started and then I'll take over? You know, I, I need your strength to get saved, but then I'll follow Jesus in, in my strength. And when you do that, you accept a future that is spiritually weak. This explains why we know some Christians, and I'm not trying to be judgmental on this, but we know some Christians who have been Christians for many years, and yet they are incredibly immature when it comes to their faith. Because shallow grace produces infantile faith. Shallow grace produces infantile faith. We've all been to the kiddie pool, right? And we've seen that little pool of water that's just a few inches high, not not very much water at all, and the little babies are splashing in it as they should. But what would you say if you saw a grown man 
in the kiddie pool, you know, going like this, right? I mean, I mean, you would look at him and you would say, why are you doing that? And he would maybe say something like, well, I'm, I'm learning how to swim, right? I'm practicing and trying to become a, a stronger swimmer. And you would say, well, the only way you really become stronger is by going into deeper water. And the only way you can become stronger in Jesus Christ in your relationship with him is to go deeper in your understanding of and your experience of God's grace. And that's what Peter means when he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 18. He says, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't just mean you know, that you and I grow in our theoretical knowledge or in our, our, our theological understanding of the doctrine of grace. God's grace is, is his strength, his power, his enabling of us to do what we could not do in our own power. Well, what Peter is saying is you need to grow in your capacity to have every part of your life empowered by the strength and the grace of God. And God is so desirous that you attain this knowledge, that he is going to enroll you in a class. And here's where the sermon takes what is a little bit of a, a turn we may not like, because that class is called suffering. Now, the reality is that everybody's got to take the class because we live in a fallen world, a broken world in need of redemption. But some Christians think, well, if I just follow Jesus, then aren't I supposed to skip the class? Aren't I supposed to skip the class called suffering? I've heard preachers, preachers say that, that if you'll just follow Jesus and, and write them a check, all your troubles will just go away. No, following Jesus does not mean that you get taken out of the class. <clears throat> but following Jesus does mean that you get equipped to learn to take something out of the class. There's a very popular, and, uh, a very popular author and thinker named Malcolm Gladwell. And he wrote a book several years ago that was a New York Times bestseller. It's called David and Goliath. And in the book, he studies what enables people to overcome what are sometimes amazing and difficult odds to achieve some, uh, some measure of success. And the thing that most surprised him as he studied these you know, successful entrepreneurs was that between a third and a half of them had learning disorders, specifically or especially dyslexia. And so he pondered the significance of that, and he wrote, there are two possible interpretations for this fact. One is that this remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability. They are so smart and so creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling with reading, could, do, could stop them. But the second, more intriguing possibility, is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder. That they learned something in their struggle that proved to be of enormous advantage. He called it the advantage of disadvantage because he suggested, and I agree, that there are some things that can only be learned the hard way. And I think grace oftentimes is one of those things. Now, no one wrote about, talked about, preached about grace more than a man named Paul who wrote half of the New Testament. And he was given many <clears throat> privileges, and among them were revelations. He wrote to the church in Corinth, and he said, I, I had a revelation of paradise that was so amazing, I can't even put it into words. I can't even describe how amazing it was. But with great revelation also comes great temptation. 
And so Paul wrote to that church and he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Now, suffering is a given. Suffering in this world is, is, is not an elective course. It is a required course. And it's something that we are all going to experience. It is a given in this life. The question we're asking is, can suffering be a gift? And Paul would say, yes, it is. Because when you hit rock bottom, only then can you discover how deep grace goes. And one thing you learn is that grace can strengthen your weakness. Grace strengthens our weakness. Now, please listen closely. I don't, I don't want you to hear something that I am not saying in, in this lesson. I, I, I do not believe, and I'm not saying this, that suffering is good. Suffering is not good. Three, three different times, Paul asked God to take his suffering away, to take his pain away, and God never rebukes him for asking for that. If you right now are in a place of, of tremendous suffering and pain and you're going through some really, really difficult times, ask God to take it away. God never rebukes us for asking for him to take it away. The Bible never affirms that suffering in and of itself is good, but it does affirm that God is committed to bringing something good out of your suffering. And the good that he brought out of Paul's suffering was the humble realization of how badly Paul needed God. You see, our flesh values self-reliance. Our flesh wants to believe that when life gets hard, we can just hunker down and power through. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when we need to do that to hunker down and power through. There are times where, where we need to persevere and the Bible does talk about that. But the truth is you are never in more desperate need than when you forget that you are in desperate need of God. And Paul would tell us, I preached grace. I wrote about grace. I was called the apostle of grace, but I never understood just how deep grace goes until I was at the bottom. Some of you may have heard the name uh, Joni Erickson Tata. She's a Christian author and speaker, and uh, she was paralyzed from the neck down early on when, when she was very young. She was in a diving accident in high school. But she was at a women's conference one time, and, and she was in the restroom, and a woman came up to her and, and, and said, Oh, Joni, you, you always look so together and so happy, even in your wheelchair. I, I just, I wish I had your joy, Joni. How do you do it? And Joni decided that it was a moment for brutal honesty. And so she said, I don't do it. And then she said this, may I tell you what my day is like every day? My husband usually leaves the house about six in the morning. So I lie in bed, unable to do anything until seven when I hear a friend come through the door and start to make coffee. And I know it's about to start again. In a moment, she's gonna come in. She's gonna give me a bath. She's gonna get me dressed. She's gonna sit me up in a chair. She's going to brush my teeth. She's going to brush my hair. She's going to give me something to eat. And I think I can't go through this one more time. I have no resources. I know she's going to expect a smile and I don't have one. 
but God, you do. So could I have one of yours? And so she comes in the door and I turn my head and I smile, but it's not mine. It came straight from heaven. You say I have joy. Let me tell you something. Every morning it is hard won. And then she closed with this line. I have learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. And the more we lean on God, the stronger we discover him to be. The Bible says in James, a couple other places, 1 Peter, Psalms, Proverbs, that God gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But the problem is that far too often our pride resists deep grace because we think that that we've got to do it on our own, that we can do it on our own. We sometimes sing the song here at church, "I, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. The question is, do we really believe that? When we sing those words, do we really believe those words or is that just something where we're singing because that's the song that's being sung? I mean, how much do we truly want and desire to discover the all-sufficiency of the grace of God? Because you can't learn how strong God is until you humble yourself and admit that you are in a place of weakness. Because God doesn't give his deep, sustaining grace instead of weakness. Rather, he gives it in the midst of weakness. And that's something worth learning. And it's something worth telling too. So Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, so now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me ask you, what do you brag about? Well, you probably brag about those parts of your life where you are strong. I know that's what I tend to do. But you know what? When you are at the bottom, do you really want to listen to somebody who tells you how awesome it is to be at the top? Or do you want someone to tell you what it was like when they hit bottom? But here's the amazing thing about grace. It actually lengthens your witness. It lengthens our witness. It opens doors for my testimony that may never have been opened before. Now, we, we all know the line, or you probably heard the line, that hurt people hurt people. And that's true. That, that is true. And we see that far too often. But here's another truth. This is also true. Hurt people can also help people. You know, we want to leverage our strength for God, and I think God does certainly use our strengths, but sometimes God wants to leverage our weaknesses to show his strength. And that's why Paul says, I delight in my sufferings. Not because he loves suffering. He's not sadistic. That's not why he says, I delight in sufferings, but because he loves Jesus. And his weakness became a forum to display the grace of God because people come to understand how deep God's grace goes by listening to folks who discovered it at the bottom. Maybe that's why Paul, what Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, when he writes, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. And when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Have you considered that what you're going through 
might be preparing you for something that God's going to call you to. I'm always thoughtful when it comes to this idea of suffering about the way that pearls are made. You know, pearls don't just grow on trees, right? They're made, uh, natural pearls are made in, in nature. Uh, they come from a, a living sea creature called the, the uh, come from an oyster. And what happens is that some foreign substance like a, a you know, parasite or a little pebble or maybe a grain of sand will, will somehow make its way into the oyster's shell and it will irritate the, the soft flesh of, of the oyster. But God has, has de- designed this creature to excrete this liquid as a defense mechanism that will start to coat and cover up that irritant until eventually more and more coating gets put on. It becomes what we call a pearl. But here's the point. The treasure could have never been produced without the pain. You know, we all have scars. Some we admit, some we don't. But your scars are the story of your encounter with the grace of God. And nobody can take away your scars. But you can give away your story. Because grace lengthens your witness. You see, one of the most amazing things about grace is that it can take your weakness and transform it into your most powerful witness. Because when God puts somebody in your life that's in a really deep, dark place, you're able to say, but grace goes deeper. Grace goes deeper. I'm sure many of us remember the story a few years ago of the 33 Chilean miners who were trapped uh, 2,000 feet below the surface. And in his book, Deep Dark Down, Hector Tobar, Hector Tobar tells their story. They, they thought they were died. They were not expecting to be rescued. And they knew that they had lived their lives with some regrets. And so one of the 33, a man by the name of Jose Henriquez, was, uh, who, was at, who was a devout Christian, was asked to pray. Well, he was, the group asked him to pray, and he did, but they weren't quite expecting what he, him, him to pray what he prayed. And this is what he prayed. He said, Lord, we haven't been the best men. Would you have pity on us? And he went on to pray, Victor Segovia knows he drinks too much. Victor Samora is too quick with his anger. Pedro Cortez thinks about the poor father he's been to his young daughter. And no one pushed back. No one minded. In fact, their response was, we need to do this more. And so every day they would take a little bit of the food they had left and they would basically have communion with each other. And they would confess their sins. They were oblivious to what was going on 2,000 feet above them, not knowing of the frantic rescue operations that were going on. But one day there was the creation of a hole to penetrate the darkness. And food and supplies and even iPads were lowered down into that cave and the miners received them and they became aware that the world knew their plight. They became aware that they were now famous, that they might even get rich out of all of this. And the praying stopped. And the most convicting line I read in a version of their story was this. They were at their best when life was at its worst. I want God's best for you. You want God's best for you. And most importantly, God wants his best 
for you, but you will never know God's best for you as long as you splash around in the shallow waters of grace. You desperately need to desperately need God. And so I'm going to ask you today to allow God to go to the deep places in your life. Allow God to go to the deep places, his grace to go to those deep places in your life. And you know what they are. I don't know what they are for you, but you do. That deep place is the place maybe that you wish would go away. Maybe it's the thing that you just can't fix. It's that place where your, your pride is just getting in the way and you desperately need to desperately need God. Ask him to remove it, but if he won't remove it, ask him to redeem it. Ask God to use your witness as a platform to experience a depth of grace that you have never known. Do what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So where do you need it most? Wherever it is, I've got some good news. God's grace is deep enough to go there.